Tonight I want us to back up a little bit and go to 1 Kings chapter number 20. Now, the story that is set before us tonight, it still involves the nation of Israel, and it still involves the Syrian army. But we gain a little bit of a different lesson tonight about the things that the Lord does for us. Uh, you know, it, it's been said so much, it almost seems cliched. But, you know, sometimes cliched things are cliched because they're true. And it's a common experience in life. And you've heard before about storms and valleys and things of that sort. In fact, I think I heard something about it uh, at Senior Saints on this past Friday, that everybody's either going into one, in the middle of one, or coming out of one. And certainly, if you're a believer, valleys will be an experience that you have. I would love to tell you that it's all high points. But if it was all high points, those points wouldn't be very high. Without the valleys, we do not have high points. And in 1 Kings chapter number 20, we learn a little bit about what the devil would love to do with the valleys in our lives, but what the Lord would love to do with the valleys in our lives as well. You know, God has a will for your life, but the devil also has a will for your life. And it is up to you whose will prevails in the day today. 1 Kings chapter number 20, and let's begin reading in verse number 22. The Word of God says, And the prophet came to the king of Israel and said unto him, Go, strengthen thyself, and mark, and see what thou doest. For at the return of the year the king of Syria will come up against thee. And the servants of the king of Syria said unto him, Their gods are gods of the hills. Therefore they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And do this thing, take the kings away, every man out of his place, and put captains in their rooms. And number thee an army, like the army that thou hast lost, horse for horse, and chariot for chariot. And we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And he hearkened unto their voice, and did so. And it came to pass at the return of the year that Ben-Hadad numbered the Syrians, and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the children of Israel were numbered, and were all present, and went against them. And the children of Israel pitched before them like two little flocks of kids. But the Syrians filled the country. And there came a man of God, and spake unto the king of Israel, and said, Thus saith the Lord, because the Syrians have said, The Lord is a God of the hills, but He is not God of the valleys. Therefore will I deliver all this great multitude into thine hand, and ye shall know that I am the Lord." And they pitched one over against the other seven days. And so it was that in the seventh day the battle was joined, and the children of Israel slew of the Syrians an hundred thousand footmen in one day. But the rest fled to Aphek into the city, and there a wall fell upon twenty and seven thousand of the men that were left. And Ben-Hadad fled and came into the city into an inner chamber. Now I want you to look back with me at verse 28. Let's read that verse once again. And then we'll pray. And there came a man of God and spake unto the king of Israel and said, Thus saith the Lord, because the Syrians have said, The Lord is God of the hills, but he is not God of the valleys. Therefore will I deliver all this great multitude into thine hand, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we do come before you humbly as we know how tonight, Father, asking you to do in us that which we cannot accomplish through the arm of flesh. Lord, there may be some in this building tonight, I don't know, but you most certainly know, that are facing trials and difficulties and valleys and storms. Father, you know the encouragement that they need. Father, we're trusting the God of all comfort to comfort us through the Lord Jesus Christ tonight. 
and to remind us once again that the battle has already been won. Lord, we love you. We ask you to accomplish this now for your glory. We ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In 1 Kings chapter number 20, we have a familiar passage of Scripture. Most of you have probably read this before. I'm probably not going to tell you anything you don't already know this evening. But I want to remind you of the experience of the valleys that we go through. I'm very interested in the statement that is made to the king of Israel in verse number 22. And if by way of introduction I could point out a few things about the devil, I believe we'd be helped tonight. You know, the Bible commands us to be educated about the uh, devices and about the wiles of the devil. God doesn't want us to be ignorant of his devices or ignorant of his wiles. One of the great, uh, the great disservices you can do for yourself in your life is to underestimate the power of Satan. I'm aware that we have victory through Jesus Christ. But can I remind you something, that though we do have victory through Jesus Christ, we can most certainly give the devil an advantage in our lives. And in this passage, we learn a few things about Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, and I think they parallel some important truths about Satan. Notice first with me in this verse that he is a powerful foe. The prophet says to him, "...go strengthen thyself." In other words, the prophet is saying you're going to have to be strong for the battle that is in front of you. It would do us well to remember with that old adage that we're either in the middle or coming into or going out of a valley that there's always another battle coming. And we need to be strong for that battle. We need to put on the whole armor of God. We need to be aware in this spiritual warfare that we're in that it's going to take spiritual strength to defeat the foe. I believe probably one of the greatest crippling things in modern Christianity is the dismissive attitude towards spiritual warfare that the average marginal Christian holds. Most folks, when you start talking about spiritual warfare, you know, they start looking at you cross-eyed. And you start talking about the battle that's around us, they start looking at you funny, you see. We're afraid to use terminology like battle and fighting and strength and armor. We're afraid somebody's going to think that we're radicalized. Let me tell you something. I don't mind being radicalized in the name of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not talking about an earthly or a physical battle, and anybody that likes to think we are is just being ignorant. We understand that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. We're not talking about taking the world by storm by sword. Nobody's saying that. I'm aware that we're afraid to say that because of the way that Islam is running uh, rampant in this world. And uh, make no mistake, Islam is trying to do that at the edge of a sword. Uh, But Christ said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight. Uh, We're not talking about going down to your neighbor and threatening to chop off his head or attack him or blow him up if he doesn't accept the Lord Jesus Christ. What we are talking about is the spiritual battles that take place. And listen, I'm not just allegorizing the struggles that we go through with the term spiritual battles. They are very much, in fact, spiritual battles. And inasmuch as we yield to the one that wins the victories is inasmuch as we can see and experience the victories. We need to understand that he is a powerful foe. The devil gets a hold of your life, he'll make a mess of it. If he gets a hold of your children's lives, he'll make a mess of it. If he gets a hold of your uh, marriage, he'll make a mess of it. We need to be aware of this truth and we need to be cautious and walk circumspect. We see that he is a powerful foe. But I want you to notice, secondly, that he is a perceptive foe. Isn't this interesting what the prophet tells the king of Israel? He says, Mark and see what thou doest. Now, what's he advising him to do there? He's saying... Watch your step. You know why he's telling him that? 
I don't think he's just telling him that because the battle's going to be difficult. I think what he's saying is, you better watch yourself because you can be sure that Ben-Hadad is watching you. In other words, he's looking for a chink in the armor. He's looking for some point of weakness that he can exploit. I think we need to understand that along with his uh, strength, the devil is a very subtle and wise individual as, as far as carnal or central wisdom is concerned. The Bible, when the, when the Word of God introduces the devil to us, you know what the characteristic the Lord says about him? He's subtle. He's more subtle than any beast of the field. In other words, he's smart. He is deceptive and he is perceptive to what's going on in your life. We need to understand that it's going to take some careful walking if we're going to maintain this Christian walk. Now, I'm not talking about doing it through your own strength. I'm not talking about uh, through your own energies. I'm just talking about this using some common sense. Uh, you know how Paul described it? I've always liked this. Paul said he would make no provision for the flesh. You know what he's saying there? He's saying, I know that the world, the, my flesh, and the devil has it in for me. And because I know that, I'm going to be very careful that I don't allow an open door to those things. We live in a world of wonderful technology, and I'm not anti-technology. I know some folks that are. I'm not. I think that technology can be used for the glory of God. But we need to be careful in as much as we have access to that technology. Never have we faced the temptations that we face today the temptation to uh, lurid things that can enter in our eyes, the temptation uh, to venomous language that can exit out of our mouth, the temptation to wicked things that can enter into our ears. Listen, we're all hooked up and plugged up to every wickedness that's all across this planet. And we need to be careful and we need to walk circumspect. He's a perceptive foe, but I'd say this, that we learn from this passage, he's a persistent foe. He says, go and mark and see that what thou doest, for at the return of the year, the king of Syria will come up against thee. In other words, and by the way, let me just give you a little context. They had just fought a battle. And they had just seen God deliver them in a mighty way. It's sort of funny. You'd be amazed how much funny stuff is in the Bible if you just read it. And the Bible's an entertaining book. I know it's not there to be entertaining, but it is entertaining. And if you read the chapter preceding this, you'll find that there had already been a battle. Ben-Hadad had gathered together a confederacy of 32 kings along with himself, and they were going to go out and defeat the children of Israel. And God comes along and tells to the king of Israel, you need to go and get them right now because they're in their pavilion, their war room, and they're drunk, and you have an advantage. And so sure enough, they go in, they find all 32 of these kings drunk, they ransack the camp, they slay a bunch of Syrians, and they win the battle. But can I remind you something? Though you may win the battle today, that won't prevent the battle tomorrow. And the Lord is trying to encourage the king of Israel to remember that there is another battle coming. And we need to keep in mind that if the devil only departed from the Lord for a season, he'll only depart from us for a season. And you may win the victory now, but there's a battle still coming. So we see some things about the devil in this passage, some characteristics about him. And I want us to take a few moments and see what the Lord does, and maybe He'll encourage us tonight if we'll yield to Him. I want you to notice first off with me in this passage the strategy of the adversary. Now, I'll be honest with you. As you're building a good sermon, and I'm going to speak homiletically, okay? As you're building a good sermon, typically you want the climax of the sermon to be at the end. But you get ready because we're going we're to give you the meat and potatoes right now, Okay? The substance of the truth that we're trying to gain tonight is found in this next few thoughts. How does the devil try to defeat us? Well, I think he tries to defeat us a lot of times in the same way 
that Ben-Hadad tried to defeat the children of Israel. And we see three basic characteristics about his strategy. And I think this sums up in many ways what the devil tries to do in our life. Look at verse number 23. And the servants of the king of Syria said unto him, Their gods are gods of the hills. Therefore they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. Let me say first off that oftentimes the devil will seek to draw us into the valley. You know, it's sad to say, but many times he can gain an advantage of us when we're in the valley. When we're going through trials and discouragement and frustration, a lot of times he can gain an advantage. It ought not be that way. Those things should draw us closer to Christ. But if you're anything like me, you've probably got a few valleys that you came out victorious, but you've probably got a few valleys that you came out defeated as well. And so basically what Ben-Hadad is saying and what his advisors are saying is the only reason they won is because they were up in the hilltops. You know, that's the opinion the world has of Christianity. And sad to say, but a lot of Christians confirm that. Let me tell you something. There's basically three kinds of Christians in the world. Are you ready? Basically three kinds. There's foul-weather Christians. Those are people that serve God when things go bad. I mean, listen, if they're broke, if they're sick, if something happened, they're in church and they're in church faithful. And then you have fair-weather Christians. They're people, they'll serve God when things are good. If something goes bad and the bottom falls out, they're absent, they're gone, they're MIA. But when things are going good, you'll see them. They'll be there with a smile on their face. And then there's what we call faithful Christians. You say, what are faithful Christians? Uh, They're going to church, they're loving God, they're serving the Lord, they're reading their Bible no matter which way the wind blows. We ought to strive to be a, a, a faithful Christian. No matter what we're experiencing, we ought to strive to serve the Lord. But oftentimes we find Christians that can be defeated in the valley. And we need to guard ourselves against that because we're very susceptible. You know as well as I do that any military strategy book will tell you that you ought to gain the higher ground. But can I remind you tonight that there's no higher ground than the ground that our Lord and Savior resides on. It doesn't matter what we're going through. Uh, it doesn't matter what we're experiencing. It doesn't matter how high the waves go. He walks upon the sea. It doesn't matter what we're experiencing. It doesn't matter how dark things are. He's the light of the world. It doesn't matter how defeated we may feel. He's the captain of our salvation. He's victorious over death and the grave and the devil and hell and sin. We need to keep in mind His ability and His power because the devil tried to draw us into the valley many times. I think he wants to draw us into the valley. Look at verse 24. The Bible says, And do this thing, take the kings away, every man out of his place, and put captains in their rooms. Now, you won't understand this unless you read chapter 19. Because in chapter 19, when the Syrians went to war, they had these 32 kings that went out with them. I thought a little while about what they were trying to do with this advice. Some commentators have stated that they were putting captains in their place because the captains would be uh, more willing and more able to fight the battle than the kings. I don't know that that's necessarily true. What I think that is being taught to us here is this, that not only does the devil want to draw us into the valley, but he wants to deceive us concerning the importance of what we're doing. You'll find this to be true, that whenever Ahab went to battle, uh, there was an instance where he goes in a confederacy with the king of Judah and they go in battle, and those that were fighting against them made this statement. They said to not run to the strong or to the weak, but to fight only against the king of Israel. Why were they doing this? They were doing this because they understood this truth, that if they could kill the king, then the army would fall. You know sometimes what the devil's trying to get us to do? He tries to take the kings out of place and put captains in their stead 
to make us think the battle isn't worth fighting. You know, it might be as they're out there on the battlefield that they would have looked one at another and looked at those 32 kings and thought, you know, we may not be much, but if we can just kill those 32 men, we'll win the battle. 32 isn't a a large amount of of enemies. They, They may have thought to themselves, it's worth it. If we can just defeat those 32, then we can win. But as they looked at those captains, they understood that the solidarity would not uh, side behind them the way that they would kings. Maybe they'd look around and get discouraged, and they'd quit looking at the 32 and start looking at the thousands. You know, sometimes the way the devil defeats us, if he, he tries to make us think the battle isn't worth fighting. Can I put it this way? He tries to make us think it's really not all that important whether we fight or not. <laughs> oh, it's not a big deal. It's just a little thing. I mean, what's the big deal if we let our kids dress however? You know, all kids are doing it. Man, it's not a big deal if we let them listen to whatever music they want to listen to. I mean, I listened to whatever music when I was a kid. You know, it's not a big deal. Hey, hey listen, it ain't a big deal if, if uh, we let kids uh, have attitudes no matter what they are. Let me go a little step further. I won't pick on the kids. Let me say this. As adults, hey, it ain't a big deal with the things that we watch on the TV. Hey, it ain't a big deal if we miss church just occasionally. Hey, it isn't a big deal if we go a week or two without reading our Bible. And what we don't realize is with every one of those decisions, with every one of those steps, we're being weakened and weakened and weakened. See, if the devil can just get us to believe it's not worth fighting, chances are we won't fight. I think he wants to deceive us. Look at verse number 25. The Bible says, "...and number thee an army like the army that thou hast lost, horse for horse, and chariot for chariot." We look down further on in the passage and we find this given to us in, uh, down in verse number 27. It says the Syrians filled the country. I think not only does the devil want to draw us into the valley and deceive us, but I think he wants to disturb us with the fight that's ahead of us. Ben-Hadad had already lost an army. That's the reason it says, for the army that thou hast lost. And the advisors say, you need to get the same strength and the same force and go at them again. It says that the children of Israel, they were just like a, a, a two little flocks of kids there. What were they against the entire Syrian army? Well, they weren't much. But what was the entire Syrian army against the Lord of hosts? See, sometimes you look at this thing with a little different perspective, it might help you. I mean, what were they against the Syrians? But what were the Syrians against God Almighty? We look at this world, man, it gets discouraging. I'm just being honest with you. It gets discouraging sometimes. And it's easy to let things discourage you. And you, you turn on the TV and you watch how wicked everything is. You go, you, you live your life, man. You, you watch me and Brother Bill were talking on Friday about all the liquor laws that take place and, uh, uh, in society. And he, he was talking about a particular county. And he said, you know, here's the funny thing. They'll put up a, a proposal for liquor by the drink. And it'll get voted down. In three months, they'll put that proposal up again and it'll have to be voted down again. And another six months, they'll put it up, and it'll have to be voted down again. Once it gets voted in, it's the last you ever hear about it. It's relentless sometimes, the assault of all that is wicked and all that destroys people's lives. It's easy sometimes just get discouraged. It's easy sometimes just throw your hands up and say, Who am I against such a large force and such a powerful foe? But let me remind you, it's not about you. This battle does not belong to you. Let me say that again. I need you to get that. This battle does not belong to you. It's not yours to win. It's not yours to lose. The battle is the Lord's. And He'll fight. He'll win. 
The question is whether we'll be there with Him when He does win, whether we'll be being faithful, whether we'll be serving Him. I'm not talking about... Listen, I understand there's coming a day when He's coming in power and in glory. We could preach about it and shout about it, and I enjoy doing that. But I'm not talking about the winning of that battle. I'm just talking about the winning of daily battles. The Lord's going to win. He's going to have the victory. The question is, are you going to be standing with Him when He does? We see the strategy of the adversary. But I want you to notice the strength of the Israelites. Now, notice first off with me, and this seems a little contradictory, but we see first off that they had no strength. Look at verse number 27. And the children of Israel were numbered and were all present and went against them. And the children of Israel pitched before them like two little flocks of kids. We see the weakness down here. They didn't have any kind of army to fight this battle. They didn't have any kind of strength to withstand the Syrians. And the truth is, you and I, we don't have the strength for the battle in front of us. In and of ourselves, we don't have any strength. We don't have any capability. Uh, Most discouraged Christians get discouraged by trying to do this thing in the flesh instead of doing it through yielding to the leading of the Spirit of God. We talked for a little while in Sunday school this morning about that. None of us like to think that we're those people that Paul's talking about in 2 Timothy chapter 3, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. Let me ask you something. Have you got a form of godliness? I'd say you probably do. You probably wouldn't be in the house of God tonight if you didn't. Do you have the power of God? You say, well, preacher, I don't know about that. Well, then it sounds like you have a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. You say, how do we combat that? Well, you have to not deny that power. What is that power that it's speaking about? It's talking about the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. You say, how do I get that power? Well, if you're saved, you've already got that power within you. In the person of the Holy Ghost, you just have to yield to Him. Allow Him to move and work. Let me tell you something. If you're just following a bunch of rules, don't be surprised when you get discouraged. It's what rules do is discourage people. It's supposed to discourage someone from parking in front of a hydrant. It's supposed to discourage someone from walking on the grass. It's supposed to discourage someone from breaking the law. Rules don't do a thing to encourage you. But listen, if you're following the one that gives the rules, and if you've got fellowship with Him, and you've got a relationship with Him, if you're yielding to Him, there's no fun in rules, but there's a lot of fun in a relationship. Am I right? There's no fun in rules, but there's a lot of fun in relationships. And in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have the blessed, most blissful relationship we could have. You don't have the strength. It's not within you. But inasmuch as we yield to the Spirit of God, I mean naturally within you, you don't have it. But inasmuch as we yield to the Spirit of God, that strength is recognized and realized. We see the weakness from down here, but we see the Word from on high. What happened? Verse 28, And there came a man of God, and spake unto the king of Israel, and said, Thus saith the Lord, because the Syrians have said, The Lord is God of the hills, but He is not God of the valleys. Therefore will I deliver all this great multitude into thine hand. They got a word from heaven that told them they could win this battle. Can I just point this out? And, and, and Well, I'll wait on it because I'm going to preach it in a second. They heard from the Lord, and there was the source of their strength. You know, faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. Faith don't come by hearing and then hearing by the Word of T.D. Jakes or, or you know, Creflo Dollar, or, but by the Word of God. That's where the strength comes from. Not through you putting words in God's mouth, but through you taking every good word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord. And it being your strength, and it being your substance, and it being your water, and it being your manna, that's where you get strength from. I can't promise you anything that God hasn't promised you. I could, but it wouldn't matter. Let me tell you something. It's through these exceeding great and precious promises that we're made partakers of the divine nature. 
We have all we need in the promises of God. There's nothing lacking in the promises of God. If God knew that I needed a hundred new suits or a brand new vehicle or a big mansion on the hill, He would have promised me those things, but He didn't. But you know what He said? Having food and raiment therewith, be content. Be content. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Let me tell you something. Most of the stuff we're chasing after would ruin us if we ever got it. It'd ruin us if we ever got it. America is more prosperous than any country in the world, and I believe it's the favor of God that's done that. But let me say this, that we can't survive prosperity. We've got everything that we need, so we kick God out the door. Right? We can't survive prosperity. And the thing that you think you need the most, it might be your undoing. But if you'd find in the promises of God the strength that you need for the battle ahead, there's a few things that the Lord has promised us, and we ought to be content with them. Can I give you one? One is this. Uh, the Bible says that, that uh, we're to let our conversation be without covetousness, for the Lord hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. You know what that means, let your conversation be without covetousness? It means be satisfied in this. Be content with this, that the Lord hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. The greatest promise in the Word of God is the promise of the presence of God. All of the divine plan of God was about having the presence of God. You understand that? They called His name Emmanuel, which is to be interpreted God with us. Everything that God's done from the moment that He pulled back the veil of nothing, created something, stepped inside of time and created humanity all the way to the point where He sits upon the throne and the Lamb is the light and there is no sun there. It's all been about humanity having the presence of God with them. That's the divine plan that we might know God and know Him personally. And right now, you and I, we have that promise He'll never leave us nor forsake us. Let's take encouragement in that tonight. Let's take encouragement in this, that inasmuch as we follow the Lord, the devil's got to beat Christ before he can beat us. He's got to beat Christ before he can beat us. We see the Word from on high, but then we see the witness of heaven. Look at the next phrase. I like this. It says... And ye shall know that I am the Lord. Can I, can I give you a, a word of encouragement tonight? Now, it was what I was going to say a moment ago. I'm glad the Lord just put the brakes on me because I'm looking forward to saying it now. That everything the Lord's doing, He's not doing for your comfort. He's doing for His glory. It's interesting that the man of God did not say to the king of Israel, because you're in so much danger, the Lord's going to do this. That's not what it says. It didn't say because the nation of Israel could be extinguished, He's going to do this. It doesn't even say that the Lord's going to do this because of His promises to you, although that could be equally true. You know what the Lord says? I'm going to do this because they said I can't do this. They said that I'm not God somewhere that I am God. And so I've got to show up and prove to them that I am God. They said, I'm only God of the hills. So I'll show up in the valley and prove to them I'm God of the valleys too. The reason the Lord's doing in our lives what He's doing is to bring Himself glory. Not just so that we can have a good time. I'm glad we can have a good time along the way. But that's not what He's doing it for. He's not doing it for you. He's not doing it to please you or comfort you and encourage you. And it does all those things. But that's not why He's doing it. Listen, until you get this through your mind, you're going to be scratching your head a lot until you really let it sink in that it's not about you, it's about Him. And you say, well, that don't sound fair. Well, get over it. He's God. He's God. We get awful upset about it being all about God, but after all, He is God. 
You say, that's a God complex. Well, He is God. He's allowed to. If anybody's allowed to have a God complex, I'd say it's God. If anybody's allowed for it all to be about Him, I'd say it's the one without whom there wouldn't be all of this. And we're all, listen, we're created for His pleasure. And all things He might have the preeminence. All things were created by Him, but not only were all things created... We get that. We wouldn't be sitting in the church house tonight if we didn't get that, that all things were created by Him. Listen, if you're still struggling over whether God created everything, I can't help you tonight. But most of us understand that all things were created by Him. But you just grab onto this and don't let go that all things were created for Him as well. The reason He'll do this is not because of you. He'll do this because of Him. To give a witness from heaven. Well, finally, and I'll just mention these in close. We see the strategy of the adversary and we see the strength of the Israelites. But in closing, we see the slaughter of the army. Well, God showed up and things went His way. Every time God shows up, things go His way. You've heard preachers say this before, that, uh, that Jesus broke up every funeral that He went to. And it's true. We don't have a single scriptural account of anybody staying dead in His presence. And so the Lord shows up and we see a few things take place. Now notice first off with me in verse 29, we see it was a delayed slaughter. It says in verse 29, and they pitched one over against the other seven days. Seven days. For seven days they stood and looked across that valley at each other. For seven days they sized each other up. And probably for the nation of Israel for seven days they trembled and waited. I wish I could tell you that things are going to turn around tonight. They might. God's able to do that. But it may take a little longer. I wish I could tell you you're going to wake up. Listen, there's people in this room praying for very, very specific things. Very specific things. And they're asking God to do things in their life, to deliver some things in their life. And I wish I could tell you that that was going to happen tomorrow. But I can't tell you that. Because sometimes there's a delay in what God's doing. We talked a little bit about it last week. We preached on prayer and reasons that answers to prayer are sometimes prevented and delayed in our life. But just grow comfortable with this, that though God may not show up on your time, He always does show up on time. Always. We find this truth, that at the end of seven days, guess what? The Israelites were still there. The Syrians didn't storm their camp in six days. If they had, God would have showed up on the fifth day. But God knew exactly what He was doing. God always knows exactly what He's doing. Listen, I don't scold you for being impatient. We're all impatient. I don't scold you for wanting things to change now. We all want things to change now. We want them to change yesterday. But grow comfortable with the fact that the Lord's going to do things in His timing. And His timing is right. Always, always, always. We see it was a delayed slaughter, but we see it was a decisive slaughter. Look what it says in the next phrase in verse number 29. It says, and so it was that in the seventh day the battle was joined. Boy, you could preach a whole message on that phrase. So it was. And the children of Israel slew of the Syrians an hundred thousand footmen in one day. I am not a historian. But I know that as you survey battle statistics, hundred thousand in one day, That's a pretty good dent to put in the other side. When it happened, it happened. (laughs) I found this to be true in my life. And and you may have a different experience. Come up, punch me in the mouth afterwards if you want to. But in my experience, man, when God shows up, He shows out. 
Sometimes you've got to wait, and you've got to wait, and you've got to wait. But when He shows up, He shows up. And it's a decisive thing. When God gives victory, because He does it for His glory, He always does it in a way to where He can gain glory. God doesn't operate in half measures. We find only one instance in the Gospels of someone being half healed. Right? You remember the man that was blind, and the Lord opened his eyes, and he opened his eyes in the book of Mark, and he saw men as trees walking. Now, there's a spiritual truth there, and I'm not going to preach it. But before the Lord left him, he healed him again. Before the Lord left him, he opened his eyes all the way. Every other person, listen, he didn't half heal people in the Bible. He didn't take someone out of the stretcher and put them in a wheelchair. He didn't, listen, he didn't, he didn't open someone's eyes and then hand them a pair of glasses. He, he didn't lose someone's tongue and then tell them to whisper. When the Lord shows up, He shows up. And it's a decisive thing. Finally, and I'm done, we see it was a delayed slaughter and a decisive slaughter, but we see without a shadow of a doubt that it was a divine slaughter. I, there's a great truth here that I think is worth mentioning as it relates to dispensationalism into the end times. And that was this, that though there were some that fled, all were ultimately vanquished. Let me tell you something. Right now, you understand that the devil, his days are numbered. He still has a lot of power in this world. But there's coming a day when he'll be bound in chains and cast into a bottomless pit. At the end of that thousand years, after he goes to deceive the four corners of the earth, he's going to be taken and cast into the lake of fire, which is prepared for the devil and his angels. Understand that there's coming a day when there won't be any more battles. But there's another truth here, which is this. In verse number 30, the Bible says that they ran away and they fled into a city and they found some sort of safety, they thought, there. But it says this, But the rest fled to Aphek, into the city, and there a wall fell upon twenty and seven thousand of the men that were left. Boy, now I don't know about you, I've had some bad days. (laughs) But I've never had a day that bad. You might almost say that that was the judgment of God, wouldn't you? I mean, they escaped the battle. They got away. And then a wall falls on them. I mean, that's rough. You know what God's trying to show? He's trying to show twofold. One, this. The enemies of God will never prosper, and they will not escape. But then He's trying to show the people of God this truth, that it wasn't just them. It was God that had shown up. You know, they might have looked one to another and said, Boy, we did a good job out there in the battle today. One might have looked at the, I don't know what their names were, probably Jewish names, but it's not as funny if you use Jewish names. It might have been that Carl looked over at Ed and said, You know, Ed, did you see me? I, I killed a hundred men out there today. And Ed might have looked over at Carl and said, Just a hundred? I, I killed five hundred. They might have got to think to themselves, Boy, I did a pretty good job out there. But what about those twenty-some thousand? God didn't want anyone... You know, can, I, can I put it this way? God hath not chosen the wise of this world or the strong of this world. He's chosen the weak to confound the mighty and the things that are not to bring to naught the things that are. You know why? That no flesh may glory in His presence. One thing's for sure about it. When God does show up, you'll know it was God that showed up. When God does intervene in your life, you'll know that it was God that intervened. I know it feels like it won't never happen. I know it feels like this valley is a hundred miles long. But understand that when He does show up, He shows up in a big way. Keep following, keep trusting, keep praying, keep serving. Because you might be on your sixth day, and the Lord might be showing up tomorrow.